Welcome inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams. West Virginia writer Crystal Good spent the past two years living in California. Today, we'll hear what led her to return to West Virginia and launch a newspaper that centers non-white voices. I know that this is needed because how many black journalists are working in West Virginia right now? And we hear from teenagers in Western North Carolina as they share who they are and how they see themselves in the world. I am from the sensation of bare feet pounding the earth and the bounce of a kickball over and over again. Dance is who I am. I am freestyle dance. Dance is my escape. When I dance, I feel like I'm in my own world. We'll also meet the composer of our theme music. His arrangement of a Christmas classic is being performed in one of America's most famous venues. And I thought, well, what have I got to Carnegie Hall? At that time, I was like, that's never going to happen. And then here I am two years later, I bought plane tickets to go up to see my piece getting played at Carnegie Hall. So I guess, you know, anything's possible. You'll hear these stories and more this week inside Appalachia. Welcome inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams. Parts of Kentucky, Tennessee, and four other states are in recovery mode following deadly tornadoes that left a trail of devastation. At least 88 people have died at the time of this recording. Among the town's hardest hit was Bowling Green, Kentucky. 15 people died, and emergency responders estimate close to 500 homes and 100 businesses were destroyed. WKYU's Lisa Autry filed this story just after the tornadoes hit. A global pandemic has made the past year and a half stressful, to say the least. And even Mother Nature screams sometimes. This is the hardest tornado event we've ever been through. And it's not just because of the property damage, but we lost a lot of good people. Kentucky Governor Andy Beshear grew emotional at a news conference in Bowling Green hours after an EF3 tornado, packing winds of 155 miles per hour, swept through the city in the wee hours of Saturday morning. It's really hard. And... uh, Really painful. The Warren County coroner has confirmed 11 deaths, including children, and that number could rise as more victims are found under debris. Members of a multi-generational family living under the same roof are counting their blessings after losing their home in the tornado. Eric Alford was sleeping around 1.30 Saturday morning when the storm came through his neighborhood. Basically, the alarms was going off on our phones, and that woke us up and alerted us. And then all of a sudden... It sounded like a freight train. I mean, it was it was loud and vicious, and it didn't last long. I mean, it it mowed through here. It mowed through here pretty pretty quick. The roof of Alfred's house on Ewing Ford Road was completely blown off, and nearly everything inside lost to wind or water damage. The home's most valuable belongings were saved. Alfred, his wife, and two sons, as well as his daughter-in-law and newborn grandchild, were all able to make it to the home's basement. Crystal Kavanaugh's family was also spared in the storms. They live on Willow Way in the Briarwood neighborhood. A tree went straight through her daughter's bedroom, but she wasn't home. No, spent the night with a friend, thank God, yes. Power is out and trees are completely uprooted along Willow Way, but neighbors rallied together to begin the cleanup. Across town, a staple for decades on the Bowling Green Bypass was another casualty of the tornado. The Cardinal Motel, built in the 1960s, is now owned by P. Desai, who surveyed the damage and called it overwhelming. I feel like it's completely lost right now to me. Yeah, because you can see the whole roof and everything come down and the room's already been destroyed. All the furniture's inside, you know, everything's get wet and stuff. His family lives in an apartment attached to the motel and is among Warren County's displaced residents. The American Red Cross has opened a shelter at South Warren Middle School. Executive Director Jennifer Capp says it's the worst local disaster she's seen in her career. So today's my 15th anniversary with the Red Cross, and it's definitely, it's horrific. She says the community has been nonstop with donations, such as food, clothes, diapers, and hygiene items. At this point, we're trying to just organize it and make sure that we have everything kind of grouped together. And then I think we'll probably turn around and, you know, ask the community to stop with that effort and then go to making monetary donations. Uh, This is a kid's right here. What size is that one? Western Kentucky University student Abby Haynes helped sort clothes at the shelter. Um, We're taking coats, separating them between men's and women's and different sizes and 
So, I mean, it's just kind of been really cool to see just the overflow of things being brought in, people wanting to stay and help sort and just come together. Another shelter volunteer was Jessica Murray, a registered nurse at TJ Sampson Community Hospital in Glasgow. You know, I, I was seeing everything on social media, reached out to the Red Cross to see what help they needed, asking if they needed medical help. They said, sure, come on down. Robert Valdivizio is okay physically, but emotionally he is shaken. He and his wife live on Village Creek Drive just off Russellville Road. There were winds, and then we started to hear debris hit the outside of the building. We heard windows crashing in, and then we heard the roof peel off the top of the, the house. Uh, at one point while we were hiding in the bathtub, we, I could feel the floor lifting up, so it was picking us up, so I did fear for my life. Valdivizio never thought he'd be in this predicament, but he's glad to find refuge at the shelter. I was very impressed, and still, I'm still very impressed to see how quickly people came together and made all this available. I'm very blessed. It inspires me to kind of do the same whenever I, I'd have the opportunity. The tornado hit exactly two weeks before Christmas, and for Valdivizio, he understands now more than ever, it's not what's under the tree, but who's around it. I'm Lisa Autry in Bowling Green. That story originally aired December 12th. Families are still struggling to rebuild and cope with the loss. Churches have stepped in to assist. A day after the tornado, one church held its Sunday service even though its building was destroyed. Others provided food, clothing, and shelter to those displaced, as Liam Nehemiah reports. The minister's wife picked up the bells to start the service. There were hymns, communion, and lots of prayers. We do keep in our hearts those who've lost loved ones, those who've lost their homes, and those who are discouraged. The Congregation for First Christian Church of Mayfield did this all in the parking lot Sunday morning next to their destroyed Tambrick Church, shredded by the tornado. Senior Minister Milton West isn't sure they'll ever worship in their building again. But West says that's not important right now. But the most important thing they gained is they saw each other. And it's good for them, and it's healthy, and it's healing. And this is how you, that's how you overcome things. Mayfield community members lost homes, loved ones, and historic church buildings. Much of the town is unrecognizable. But leaning on their faith, First Christian Church still gathered. And other local churches in western Kentucky still standing rallied to aid. Churches in Paducah and Graves County offered shelter and food with American Red Cross cots set out across worship areas. And at His House Ministries in Mayfield, dozens moved quickly throughout the church-turned-resource center. Semi-trucks of clothes and supplies from other states are sorted in the sanctuary, along with an assembly line of hot meals in the lobby. It's a relief for folks like Brenda Moore, whose home is a total loss. Oh, we got, we got well-blessed here. We got some air mattress, we got some comforter, we got towels, wash rags, uh, uh, hygiene, accessory, and all the above. And we Everything we needed, basically. About 10 miles outside of Mayfield, two churches in the community of Wingo are now impromptu shelters for more than 100 people. Sloping down the hillside in Wingo lies the Way Community Center. An old factory building turned to youth center serves as a warm place for 22-year-old Austin Case and his fiance. He's still processing the toll of the past few days, but he's grateful for the church opening its doors. Oh <laughs> it, just, it just hurt, you know, because you wake up and, you know, you like we had a little park right across the street where the kids would play and people would bring their dog and it's just, it's gone, you know. Case and his fiance were wondering how to pay for Christmas gifts before the tornado. Now they're wondering how their community even moves forward. For Beverly Duffy in the Wingo Center, she wholeheartedly believes in a higher power and believes herself and the Mayfield community will be taken care of. We'll go wherever God leads us. That's all I can say. Right now, he led me to this shelter, and this is where I'm going to stay until it's time to move on. She's thankful for the food, medicine, and company provided in Wingo, but that doesn't erase the memory of what happened to her home and hometown. You know, I went out yesterday just to kind of view what it looked like. And about tears to my eyes because I'll never see the things that I grew up around. They're gone. They can't be replaced. You can't rebuild them because they're gone. Just up the road from the Way Community Center sits the Wingo Old Cumberland Presbyterian Church, also offering shelter to those displaced. 
Pastor R.B. Mays' message to his congregation Sunday morning tried to provide meaning to what happened. This is supposed to hurt. We're not in the world that God originally created. <laughs> it's a broken world with tornadoes and, and, and hurricanes and fires and tragedy. Mays knows there's going to be physical needs for weeks to come, buildings to be rebuilt. But in the long term, he sees faith as key to helping Graves County move on from the mental scars of this tragedy. I'm Liam Niemeyer in Mayfield. Liam filed that story last Sunday, December 12th. federal infrastructure bill that became law last month has billions of dollars in it for roads, bridges, airports, and transit systems in the Ohio Valley. But as Curtis State reports, the law also addresses other pressing needs in Appalachia. The $1 trillion infrastructure law has the potential to deliver big improvements to Appalachia. It will help reclaim abandoned mine sites, putting laid-off coal miners back to work. It will help replace lead water pipes and clean up chemical contamination in water supplies. It will also bring much-needed high-speed internet to rural communities, helping seniors on fixed incomes and children whose schools closed down during the coronavirus pandemic. While some of the funding will produce immediate benefit for the region, other improvements may take years to complete. People familiar with the region's needs see both short- and long-term impacts from the law. Appalachian states have an abundance of mines that were abandoned before 1977, and they present hazards to public safety and the environment. The infrastructure bill dedicates $11.3 billion to abandoned mine reclamation. Adam Wells, Regional Director for Economic and Community Development for Appalachian Voices, said the bill offers two things the region desperately needs. I think the top line here is that it can immediately put people to work uh, you know, in coalfield communities using skills and equipment that folks have at the ready and the benefit of you know, environmental remediation is great to see as well. Well said one challenge will be putting the people in place to administer the funding, which he said is the largest sum ever dedicated to mine reclamation. So they're going to have to really you know, rapidly staff up and get new systems in place to get that money back out the door uh, at the pace that's needed. Coalfield communities have been promised either a rebound in coal or an influx of new jobs building solar panels and other clean energy technology. So far, neither has materialized. Well said mine reclamation buys time for Appalachia to build a new, diversified, and more resilient economy. But saying that we're, um, you know, put miners back to work or keep miners on the job during reclamation feels, you know, pretty grounded in what is possible and what's happening. The infrastructure law includes $50 billion in Environmental Protection Agency funds to upgrade the country's drinking water, wastewater, and stormwater systems. Critically, it enables the replacement of lead service pipes. The water crisis in Flint, Michigan brought the issue to the forefront. More recently, the water system in Clarksburg, West Virginia was revealed to have elevated levels of lead in drinking water. Clarksburg is in the process of replacing its lead service lines. The water funds will also help state and local governments address another growing problem, contamination from PFAS, or forever chemicals. Much of the funding will flow through state revolving funds. Todd Grinstead, executive director of the West Virginia Rural Water Association, said the assistance is welcome. We're looking at quite an increase in funding for our state revolving funds, both the clean water and the drinking water side. Grinstead said the large increase in state revolving funds can allow water systems to retire debt. That keeps them from having to charge their customers more to make needed investments. And when utilities do projects, they look, you know, they look at that. They don't like adding, you know, increasing bills for people. They, they like to do it as cheap as they can, but, you know, it, it's also necessary to do the upgrades to be able to keep the quality of service up. With population loss in many coalfield communities, water systems aren't adding many new customers. But they still have to repair and replace the infrastructure they have. You know, it's, it's one thing to, to get money and install pipes and stuff, but, you know, time goes by pretty quick. And next thing you know, you've got stuff that needs replaced. The COVID pandemic laid bare one of the biggest disparities between population centers and rural communities, access to high-speed Internet. With schools closed, many students had difficulty making the connection for remote learning. Dale Lee, president of the West Virginia Education Association, said frustrated parents drove their kids to school parking lots to get Wi-Fi. 
Lee said some schools brought buses to remote communities to attempt to connect students to the Internet. It couldn't reach all of them, he said. In a rural state like we have in West Virginia, this is a major problem. And it's a problem not only for our education and our students, but it's for attracting businesses, too. The infrastructure law provides $65 billion to build out broadband connections in rural areas. Some liken it to the rural electrification efforts of the 1930s, which proved transformative for large portions of the country but took years to build. It is a, it is a very helpful thing, and the, the key now is to, to use the funds and get things going as quickly as possible. But again, it's not going to happen overnight. Lee said educators from across the country gave input as lawmakers developed the broadband component of the infrastructure bill. Lee said it has to be affordable for low-income families and seniors on fixed incomes. The law does include funding to reimburse households for a portion of their monthly Internet costs. I mean, this is not an easy task. It will take some time. Plus, you also have to provide some assistance to the low-income families to ensure that their kids can have this connectivity. For Inside Appalachia, I'm Curtis Tate. The COVID-19 pandemic continues to affect Appalachia, with case numbers on the rise yet again. That includes children who are being hospitalized with serious cases of the disease. As Corinne Boyer reports, children here in Appalachia are at a higher risk of developing a serious case of COVID. She explains why. During a news conference in October, Dr. Sean McTighe said most children hospitalized for COVID-19 at UK Children's Hospital had one underlying factor in common. So our number one driver uh, of risk for admission to the Children's Hospital has been obesity. So the majority of our, our children with severe or critical COVID have been obese, and in particular, the ones who've gotten more critically ill have, uh, have been obese. McTagg is the medical director for pediatric infection prevention and control at the UK Children's Hospital. He said all of the patients hospitalized were unvaccinated. In response to a question asking how parents might identify obesity in children, he said, One good rule of thumb I can say, though, is if you have to ask the question, there's a good chance that your child may actually meet the definition for obesity. Um, It's much easier to meet than most people think. Obesity can put children at much greater risk of having more severe disease with COVID. Isolation and the switch to online school has affected everything from access to healthy foods to regular meals and exercise. Meanwhile, states in the Ohio Valley already suffered from some of the highest rates of childhood obesity in the U.S. A report by the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation shows Kentucky has the highest rate of obesity among kids 10 to 17 in the U.S., So why does this continue to be a problem in Appalachia? Dr. Aurelia Radulescu explains. There is not just one single factor leading to obesity. There is a genetic predisposition. There are environmental factors contributing to that. And definitely the lifestyle plays a very important role. Dr. Radulescu is a pediatrician certified in obesity medicine and medical director of the BMI clinic at Kentucky Children's Hospital. She adds that sedentary levels, sleep hygiene, and access to healthy foods and safe outdoor environments may also contribute to obesity. The BMI clinic accepts children from all over the state. We have population with low income, so they are more likely to have food insecurity. There are not resources in the community, so that explains why Kentucky uh, is a leader unfortunately, in childhood obesity. West Virginia has the fourth highest rate of childhood obesity in the U.S., according to the Robert Wood Johnson report. Eloise Elliott is a professor at the College of Physical Activity and Sports Sciences at West Virginia University. She co-directs the Cardiac Project, which helps identify cardiovascular risk factors in fifth graders. For several years, the legislature funded the program in all 55 counties and once allowed for lipid panels. But the program lost funding, so now fifth graders self-report their height, weight, and answer additional health screening questions. We didn't expect it to be real accurate (laughs) because... They're fifth graders, but we were very surprised at, you know, still like 
42% of them reported their height and weight that was above the 85th percentile in BMI. Kids above the 85th percentile of BMI or body mass index are considered overweight and should be seen by a doctor. West Virginia also has a high rate of adult obesity, like Kentucky. Elliot again. Some of it is not having the knowledge on why it's important or how to eat healthy or how to find new ways to be active, but some of it's just because you know, that's not the way they were raised, and so they don't do it. To address childhood obesity, the report suggests making a handful of policies permanent, like expanding Medicaid, the child tax credit, and universal school lunches. Daniel Blatt is a pediatric infectious disease doctor at the University of Louisville Norton Children's Hospital. He says obese children can be one and a half or two times more likely to be hospitalized with COVID. Some reports are even saying three times higher than people who are not obese in children. It's hard to say exactly how many patients we're seeing that are obese and hospitalized with COVID-19, but it does seem to make disease outcome worse. Blatt says the virus also causes severe disease in children who are not obese. He says COVID-19 vaccinations are the best resource to prevent children from becoming severely ill. For the Ohio Valley Resource, I'm Corinne Boyer. Corinne originally reported that story in mid-November, before the new Omicron variant was discovered in the U.S. Up next. Who am I? Who am I? Who am I? I'm a brother. I'm a friend. I'm a cousin. I'm a hero. I am the beat to the music, from the music to the beat. I am a dancer. Dance is who I am. I am small, a tiny germ clinging to existence. I am music because my life is a constant beat, and I'm ready to shift the tone. We'll hear poetry from teenagers in Western North Carolina. You're inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams. Support for Inside Appalachia is provided by Concord University in Athens, West Virginia. With career-focused liberal arts education in more than 80 degrees and programs to pursue various career options, not just a single job. More at concord.edu. Who am I? That's a question that teenagers everywhere wrestle with as they discover their identities. Our next story comes from Blue Ridge Public Radio in Asheville. This summer, BPR teamed up with a nonprofit, Asheville Writers in the Schools and Community. Together, they hosted a series of workshops with teenagers and asked them the question, who am I? 15-year-old Antonio Stinson recorded this poem. The name of my poem is, Who Am I? I am music because that is what I am. I am music because that is what I know. I am music because that is what I do. I am music because that is what I know how to do. I am music because that is what I'm born into. I am music because that is who I am. I am music because that is what I want to do. I am music because my life is a constant song, just stuck on repeat, waiting for things to pan out. I am music because I feel like I don't fit in anywhere in the world. I am music because music frees me from the real world. I am music because my life is a constant beat and I'm ready to shift the tone. I am music because my life is like a book, ready to get on the next chapter. I am music because I feel like nobody understands me whatever I'm telling them and I'm ready for them to turn up the volume so they can hear me. I am music because I am like a newborn baby being told what to do. I am music because that is what describes me. I am music because that is what I make new friends with. I am music because that is what I discovered how to do. I am music because that is what I connect with. I am music because that is what I have fun with. I am music because that is my passion. And I am music because that is my key to life. Antonio Stinson is in ninth grade at Asheville High School. Here's another poem by his twin, 15-year-old Tori Stinson. I am a dancer. Dance is who I am. Dance is what I do. I dance for myself. Dance is my happy place. I love to dance. The dance is my everything. I'm a person who had a bad childhood, 
but when I dance, dance is my go-to thing to erase the past and move on. Dance makes me calm. Dance is who I am. I am freestyle dance. Dance is my escape. It's my escape from negative energy and bad things. Dance is my superpower. When I dance, I feel like I'm in my own world. Let's listen to one more poem. It's about growing up in the mountains. Hello, my name is Liam Burton, and this is my poem, I Am From. I am from the taste of chicken pot pie and lemon lime freezer pops. I am from the smell of freshly cut grass and pine sap drifting on the breeze. I am from the sound of crows calling, dogs barking, and birds flitting from tree to tree. I am from the sight of the Blue Ridge towering above me, watching over us as a guardian over its charge. I am from the sensation of bare feet pounding the earth and the bounce of a kickball over and over again. Liam Burton is an eighth grade student in Asheville. Here's what he said about why he was motivated to write that poem. It's honestly what I experience just kind of every day. Like crows and dogs and birds like calling outside when I'm playing in my backyard. Uh, like bouncing a kickball, um, like fresh cut grass and pine sap is definitely a smell outside. Just almost anywhere in Asheville, if you're driving around, you can see the Blue Ridge Mountains. And it kind of makes like a safe little pocket with the mountains around us. I appreciate hearing from young people. It's inspiring and refreshing and brings me a little back to that headspace. Thanks to the teenagers and the folks who put together that series, which is called StoryCraft. It's a storytelling initiative from Blue Ridge Public Radio and Asheville Writers in the Schools and Community. The StoryCraft series is part of America Amplified, a national public media collaboration focused on community engagement reporting. To learn more about StoryCraft, visit BPR.org. Now to Kentucky, where a media project of a different kind is honoring the life of Breonna Taylor, who was shot by Louisville police in March of 2020. Artists designed a digital app to function as a space for Taylor's loved ones and community members to find solace. WFPL arts and culture reporter Stephanie Wolf takes us into the augmented reality artwork Breonna's Garden. When you download the app, you're greeted with Breonna Taylor's smile and photos and videos She's dancing in the car with her sister. A Mary J. Blige song plays in the background. Then you're transported to the garden itself. Brianna's garden is full of her favorite things, tulips and butterflies and a hologram of her sister. My name is Janaya Palmer. I am Brianna Taylor's little sister. I'm Lady Phoenix. I'm an artist and curator, primarily conceptual artist. Lady Phoenix directed the project and connected with Palmer in the summer of 2020. We met through Instagram. I began following Brianna's story through media. I actually didn't care for the story and the energy with which the media was portraying the family or her. And I thought, let me look into what's going on for myself. And so mainly in observing Janaya on screen, I felt for her very deeply in my heart. She's got the real news. She's the person with the only story that matters, actually, because, you know, she's family. She loved her. Lady Phoenix wanted the artwork to be about Taylor's life, not her death. Did you know right away that you wanted to do something in the AR or VR realm for this project? Absolutely, because uh, I wanted to create virtual presence, you know, provide Janiya the opportunity to be with her sister again. And for me, the only kind of real way to do that was with technology. The artwork debuted last summer at the Tribeca Film Festival, and more recently has been featured during Miami Art Week. But augmented reality is essentially portable, 
It enhances the physical, tangible environment with virtual details through the use of your smartphone or tablet. So you can turn any space into Brianna's garden. Janiya Palmer helped shape the project, but she says she was initially reluctant. I didn't want to do anything in the beginning, but mom was like, you know, at some point you have to like stop being in the background and actually do things involved that involves your sister. So when I told her about it, she was like, well, look at it. Listen to what this lady is telling you. It actually understand it before you just jump into anything and you not fall in love with it. But once Lady Phoenix had explained it to me and everything, I actually did fall in love with it because it's just a moment to be away from everybody and to have by myself with my sister. The virtual flowers in Brianna's garden are messages from friends and family, like this one from her mother, Tamika Palmer. I only get comfort in praying that you are with your granny and that you both are looking over each other because I know how much you missed her. We love you. And anyone can leave their own message of remembrance or gratitude for Taylor or a loved one they've lost. That's part of the healing. I've learned that through this whole process, a lot of people express themselves through art. And art is definitely very cool to me because everybody gets expressed themselves differently within art, too. Even though they can all paint the same picture, somehow, some way, it's all different. I love that, Janaya. And I think for, for me being, you know, a creative entrepreneur and artist, I think for me, art is a language. It's an energy and it's an opportunity for people to be seen and heard. Lady Phoenix says they're planning a big event around Brianna's garden here. The next stop for sure has to be at home base, has to be in Louisville. It would be the biggest one and the most special. Absolutely. That's artist Lady Phoenix and Janiah Palmer, Brianna Taylor's sister, speaking with WFPL's Stephanie Wolf about Brianna's garden. Next, we're going to hear from a composer whose music you may recognize. Matt Jackford is a classical musician, composer, arranger, and radio host here at West Virginia Public Broadcasting, our home station. And yes, he composed our own Inside Appalachia theme music. This holiday season, Matt's at a milestone in his musical life that most can only dream of. Andrea Billups sat down to talk about his new work on a classic seasonal tune, I Saw Three Ships. So I wanted to start out and ask you about this song. Tell us a little bit about the history of Three Ships, right? Yeah, it's I Saw Three Ships. So that's the traditional Christmas carol that you hear. And what I've done is take that melody and transform it into something else. Um, it's its own standalone, you know, or almost original piece, just takes that melody and turns it into a symphonic, you know, arrangement that's different than what you would normally hear when you listen to the carol, I Saw Three Ships. How did you get started in your interest in classical music and, and further composing? So I actually, you know, didn't really write until the end of high school. I started writing on Finale. Actually, my band director loaned me his copy of music software, Finale, and I started just making up songs with it and pieces and, you know, just playing around and having fun. And then, you know, went to college as a biology major for the first two years and then was just writing so much that I decided to, you know, give composition a shot as a major. And so I switched my major in my sophomore year to music composition so that I could be doing it all the time because that's what I wanted to do. That's I was skipping biology homework to write pieces of music and so I eventually was like, well, I, won't, I might as well get credit for it. So changed my major and did that and then just took off. It just kept snowballing. You know, eventually it was played by the, you know, ensembles at West Virginia University and then um, got a, won a reading with the Pittsburgh Symphony Orchestra. And from there, went to graduate school at UT in Austin. And, you know, everything has just taken off since then. 
tell our audience who is going to play this this season. It's been picked up by three different orchestras this season. And the first is the National Symphony in Washington, D.C., and they're going to be playing at the Kennedy Center. And then also the New York Pops is going to be playing it at Carnegie Hall, and that's going to be uh, the week after that. And then there's one more orchestra in Canada that's going to be playing it. It's the National Arts Center Orchestra in Ottawa. Uh, they just recently picked it up, too. So it's, uh, these ships are sailing internationally now. How does that feel? It's an amazing experience. I mean, I honestly wasn't sure what was going to happen this December if, if any orchestras were. And I just got an email, you know, email after email asking about buying the piece or renting the piece and um, now I've got three great orchestras lined up for uh, performances this December. How do you get a greater audience or even maybe a younger audience? You're a young man and you're fascinated, it seems, by this type of music. How do we cultivate that here in West Virginia? What I'd like to do on my show is to play more contemporary music so it's more relatable to the sounds of today. Um, I also like to you know, highlight different kinds of music like film scores, for instance. That's a big part of my show is a film score Friday where we take and break down um, soundtracks from different films that are come out or different shows. And I think people are really interested in that because when you get a picture to classical music, you it's easier to understand and relate to because a lot of times for the lay listener, classical may be, you know, a little complex, but if you put a picture to it, you know, it's very easy to ingest, I think. And that's what I try to do is make sure to have new music, you know, relatable music, um, or even old music that is transformed in a new way, a different way that's, you know, more striking to the ear. Anything else that you would share with us about this piece of music? I'm just really grateful for the opportunity that conductors and orchestras have given me. And, you know, I'm it's a pretty rare experience to be able to be played in some of these amazing halls. So I'm looking forward to going up to Carnegie Hall and actually taking a listen to it. So you're actually going to go? Yeah, I'm going to. I think I've bought the plane tickets. I've got the uh, tickets to the hall, and I'm ready to go sit down in Carnegie Hall and take a listen to this piece. Is that a big moment for your musical life, especially? Well, last or two years ago, I was at the Kennedy Center and they were playing it with the National Symphony. And I thought, where, you know, how, how can I improve? How can I get better? You know, what's the next step? And I thought, well, what if I got to Carnegie Hall? I mean, at that time, I was like, that's never going to happen. And then here I am two years later, I bought plane tickets to go up to see my piece getting played at Carnegie Hall. So I guess, you know, anything's possible. That was West Virginia music composer Matt Jackford speaking with WVPB's news director, Andrea Billups. Jackford's arrangement of I Saw Three Ships played the Kennedy Center in Washington, D.C. this month with the National Symphony Orchestra. It plays this weekend, too, when the New York Pops performs it at Carnegie Hall. One thing Matt Jackford says influenced his music career was a semester he took in college living abroad, studying music in China. Sometimes, spending time away from your home makes you fully appreciate how much you love it, despite its downsides and see a place where you can try to make a difference. That's what Crystal Good did. Good is a writer and entrepreneur who grew up in West Virginia, but recently spent some time in California. Last month, she returned to West Virginia with an ambition to change the state's media landscape. Our producer, Roxy Todd, brings us Good's story. The first time Crystal Good left West Virginia, like, really left, she was 13. Up until then, apart from trips to Myrtle Beach for vacations, she really hadn't spent time outside of her small town in Kanawha County. Growing up in St. Albans uh, was safe. You know what I mean? Like uh, it was a, it was a safe place. You know, we walked around a lot. That was one of our activities. We just go walking. You call your friend, or you plan to meet him, and you just go walking. But the only markers Good had for success and beauty were the homecoming queens. The blonde, blue-eyed beauties. She wasn't that. She wasn't white. She's black. She felt different than most of the other teenagers. And then this this wonderful thing happened to me when I was about 12 years old. I won a modeling contest. And that contest took me to New York City. I signed with an agency, uh, which was a big deal. You know what I mean? Like I was, I worked for Ralph Lauren and Calvin Klein. I'm 13. 
It opened her eyes to a totally different world and a new perception of herself. But what happened to me in that experience was that my idea of beauty shifted. I recognized that beauty was not just my homecoming queen, but it was this sort of European aesthetic, right? Or it was, you know, girls from all over the world. That experience in New York gave Good a new sense of a world bigger than her hometown. I think St. Albans gave me a way to look at the world and then recognize uh, that it was a very small perspective. It was a valid perspective, but a very small um, perspective. And I think that's that's the beauty of hometowns, right? Is that once you sort of experience a bigger world, you can cherish the things that were were special and different about your town in context of a much bigger story. And for me, you know, my hometown was really about like recognizing that I was a pretty girl too. Good returned from that modeling trip in New York with big dreams. She wanted to continue her modeling career and also become a writer. As a teenager, she even considered trying to raise money to purchase the last black newspaper in West Virginia, the Beacon Digest, which went out of business in the mid-1990s. But it took leaving again three decades later at age 45 to set her back on a path to fulfilling that dream of running a black newspaper. This time, she left for California, Los Angeles. Good stayed in L.A. for almost two years, and she said her time there was affirming. I was in a space where people believed in creativity and creative ideas, and that wasn't doubted, and I needed that energy, and I needed to know that things were happening in the world and that I could be a part of it with my story. She says she had felt stuck in West Virginia, creatively, and living in California for a short time gave her the boost she needed. But she ultimately decided to come back. I asked her what she prefers. Well, I was already kind of stewing on my answer. Uh, what was the truthful answer? You know, the truthful answer was, you know, California has a lot of sunshine and an economy. You know what I mean? But, you know, I do. <laughs> um, I loved my experience in California. I loved it. But she felt pulled back. And she had a plan to launch a newspaper. It's called Black by God, the West Virginian. It's the only newspaper in the state that intentionally centers non-white voices. I know, right, that this is needed because how many black journalists are working in West Virginia right now? Good only knows of one full-time black journalist currently working in the state. And she hopes that eventually Black by God will grow so she can hire more writers and editors. Her second print issue, which published in early December, features stories about Black culture, health care, and history. There are also white voices speaking to anti-racism in the paper's opinion section. When I caught up with her, she was in the middle of distributing the free papers across the state. She's been hand-delivering them to coffee shops, restaurants, and hair salons. I have a thousand pounds of Black by God newspapers in my car. Like, this is like nuts, right? Like, what are you doing, Crystal? Um, but I just believe in it. The process of traveling throughout West Virginia, meeting people she's never met, has been an eye-opening experience for good. Because it's made her realize that there are some places where her paper isn't welcome. And that's made her question, is she welcome too? It's also broader situations that have made her afraid. I got pulled over by the police because I have California plates. And that was probably one of my scariest West Virginia moments because I didn't know why I was being pulled over. She says she wasn't aware, but her license plates were expired. But pretty soon into her conversation with the police, they continued to ask her the same question. But, you know, as soon as the officers pulled me over, they wanted to know if I was from here. And thank goodness I have a West Virginia ID. Then they wanted to know, they must have asked me four times, do you like it better here? Or do you like it better there? And my answer was, oh, officer, I like it better here, right? Now, there's some truth to that. But there was another truth, that there are things about California she likes better. But she stuck with the answer she decided would probably get her on the right side of the police. And so that gave me perspective about where Black by God can go and can't go. Because at times, Good says, people at coffee shops or gas stations refuse to carry a paper, Black by God. Sometimes, if she sees a lot of Confederate flags, she just keeps on driving. And this saddens her that this place she loves and wants to make home doesn't feel fully welcoming at times. 
She says she knows it's a gamble to launch a business in the middle of a pandemic, not to mention a media project at a time when newspapers across the country are collapsing. But she feels like it's important, something she has to do. Success for me is 10 years from now, I've got a whole bunch of emails saying, you know, I wrote my first article for Black by God. I made my first podcast for Black by God, you know, had my first paper route with Black by God. You know, I want to be that catalyst. Good wants to see Black by God be that successful catalyst. And while she's not 100% sure she'll stay, and admits there's a lot about the state that frustrates her, it's where she calls home, and always will. Good publishes her third issue of Black by God in spring 2022. For Inside Appalachia, I'm Roxy Todd. Mount Hope High School in Fayette County, West Virginia, closed nearly a decade ago. It was a blow to the community, especially its alumni. But as Jessica Lilly reports, one graduate found a way to keep that Mustang pride alive. Mount Hope High School in Fayette County, home of the Mustangs, closed in 2012. But the spirit can still be found in town. On Main Street, in an old two-story building, a group of people of various ages are gathered around a small circular kerosene heater in a narrow room. Thin red carpet covers the old hardwood floor that stretches into another wider room, scattered with extension cords, a bicycle, and some plastic milk crates. One, two, three, four. This is the home of a high school marching band. But nobody's in high school and they really don't march. They call themselves the Mount Hope Regional Band. Carrie Kidd is a founding member. We're, we're a marching band. We have a bandwagon. And because <laughs> we're too old to march in parades, but we like to be in parades. The bandwagon is a flatbed trailer that most members ride on while playing an instrument. But tonight, the band is rehearsing in this rundown building. The idea of an alumni band started back in 2011 when Kid heard that Mount Hope High School would close. Unless you've lost something like that, then you just don't understand. And so it was really to keep that Mustang pride alive. <laughs> and we just wanted to, you know, keep that heritage going in the community. It's still a part of the town's character itself. In 2017, she started Harmony for Hope, a nonprofit organization with a mission to unite Appalachians through art and music. I had a skill set because I left and I knew I could provide something to my community. So instead of going out of state, I decided to come home and provide that. Kid wears a few different hats. Geographical information system specialist by day, bell player in the adult marching style band by Thursday night. The momentum has been building ever since. Nathan Shelton graduated from Mount Hope High in 1966, just four years after desegregation. He found a place to belong as a child and now an adult in the marching band. It means that I can continue to do what I love to do, and that's play music. I just want to hope I can be here as long as I can, can put air in my horn, I'll be here to play. <laughs> the band has also grown to welcome more than just Mount Hope alumni. I found out I could join. I was jumping around like a little kid. <laughs> like, yes, yes, I always wanted to do this, yes! Karen Leathers went to school in Ohio and currently lives in Princeton. She travels almost an hour every week for rehearsal. I was so excited. I actually got to go out on a field. I couldn't carry an instrument, but I watched out on the field. <laughs> it was a dream come true for Leathers. Growing up, she wasn't allowed to join the school's marching band. Now, it's helping her cope with some childhood trauma. <laughs> it means no matter what else is going wrong in the world, this is right. It feels right. And it feels good. And it's people playing together and joining together as a team and coming out with something beautiful for people to listen to and bring joy to others. And for Mike Carver, it's a place to stay in tune with music. He grew up in Pennsylvania and moved to West Virginia seven years ago to be closer to his grandchildren. 
uh, music is really quite different here in West Virginia than it was in Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania, there was tremendous opportunities. Um, I could do a lot of solo work up there. Down here, there is no solo work available. Carver has found groups to play with, such as the New River Jazz and a gospel brass group from another city. There's very little in this area to get involved in musically, so when we heard about this this past summer, we were thrilled to come over and get involved with a group. At first there was only a couple of us, but we keep adding members, so it's growing. Growing into the Mount Hope Regional Band. After warm-ups and a few other songs, Carver plays the trumpet in his left hand while keeping time with his right. The smiles in the room are particularly bright during this classic holiday tune. I've seen the need here in the community for something to be in the community. And music is what spoke to me because music can usually go across lines that of communication that words can't. The Mount Hope Regional Band has performed at more than 25 events, many of the occasions annually. The events vary from parades to youth football games. For Inside Appalachia, I'm Jessica Lilly in Mount Hope. Founding band member Carrie Kidd says the Mount Hope Regional Band is welcoming new members, at least until space runs out in the old building. Find more information on our website wvpublic.org. Until next time, thanks for joining us as we journey throughout Appalachia. Our theme music is by Matt Jackford. We also heard a little of his arrangement of I Saw Three Ships. Other music this week was provided by Wes Swing, Jake Sheps, and Dinosaur Burps. Roxy Todd is our producer. Our executive producer is Andrea Billups. Kelly Libby is our editor. Our audio mixer is Patrick Stevens. Xander Alloway also helped produce this episode. You can find us on Twitter at InAppalachia. You can also send us an email to InsideAppalachia at WVPublic.org. There, you can also subscribe or download all of our stories. Or look for Inside Appalachia wherever you get your podcasts. Inside Appalachia is a production of West Virginia Public Broadcasting. Support for Inside Appalachia is provided by Concord University in Athens, West Virginia, with career-focused liberal arts education in more than 80 degrees and programs to pursue various career options, not just a single job. More at concord.edu.